The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Keep or Cut podcast. I'm Chad Young, joined by Pete Ball. Very excited to be back with you today. The off season, we're doing these every two weeks, and it just feels like such a long break between them. I think for a lot of people, a lot of baseball podcasters, the off season's like, there have only been a couple of signings. There's not a lot of movement yet. This is such a busy time of year for keeper leagues, though. Like I'm spending so much time thinking about how I'm building out my roster, what's going on. I feel like I, we got a lot to cover. Oh, we have, we still have a ton to. There's no off season, right, for for Otnew or for keeper leagues, and it actually has been a long time, Chad, because I wasn't on our last episode, so it's been a solid month since That's we have true. been. True, That's right. You got, you got stuck in the crazy power outage, and yep. you survived though. I did. Yeah, I came out the other side. So did my house. Thank God. So here we are. That's that's all you can ask, right? <laughs> <laughs> Glad to have you back, though. That episode was was pretty good. For hopefully, if you haven't listened to it. Well, it's it's too late because by the time you hear this episode, <laughs> arbitration will be over. We're recording this on Sunday morning, November 14th. We've got about 12 hours, 15 hours to finish up arbitration. So hopefully you've done yours, Pete. Have you finished your arbitration? Yeah, I finished both of mine and then I listened to the episode and I went back and made a couple of adjustments, I think. But no, I'm, I'm good to go in both my leagues. What were your thoughts going through? This is your first time going through arbitration, right? You didn't join the other league in time to do it last year, did you? No, yeah. Th- so the Otnew League that you invited me to, this league, that was my first league. And then I got into this second one about halfway through the year. So I, I enjoyed it. I think it's it's a really cool part to the process. I thought like, man, my cheap Aloy Jimenez, he was so bad last year that like maybe I get him cheap again. And he did end up getting hit for $4, but kind of anecdotal. I really enjoyed it. I think it's a really cool part of the process. It was awesome. Like just just hammering, you know, the guys with Corbin Burns being like, yeah, enjoy your now like $23 Corbin Burns that you had for seven last year. So in that way, it's like cathartic, I guess. Um, <laughs> but no, it was it was it was good. Yeah. For those who who didn't listen to that last episode and aren't familiar with with Auto News arbitration process, there's a, a process at the end of each season basically runs from mid-October to mid-November that as an attempt to sort of balance salaries in the league, create some parity, somewhat reflect what happens to real teams where you're, you know, you've got to cheat Mike Trout for a little while and then he starts going through the arbitration process and gets expensive real quick. Basically, every 
manager is given $25 that they can allocate to each of the other teams in the league. And so when Pete's talking about hammering someone's $7 Corbin Burns, you get to go in there and be like, you can add up to $3 onto a team. So you're like, oh, your $7 Corbin Burns, I'm making him 10. Someone else comes in and makes him 13. Someone else comes in and makes him 14 and it keeps going up. The sad part is when it's over and you go look at your roster and see yep. what what got hit there. And the, the first thing I always do when I look at my rosters after arbitration is over is there's you go into the arbitration tab after arbitration is over and it'll show you exactly who put what dollars on your team. And so I'm always checking to see like who hit me with the full three dollars. Who is just mean? Who came after my team instead of going <laughs> after another team? The other thing I'll do is I go look at, did anybody put dollars on somebody that I don't actually think was worth it? And can I trade them to that person? So I'm looking forward to tomorrow morning where I can see that stuff and and start to make some decisions about what's what's coming. That's definitely an interesting tactic. And you know, you brought it up. It is kind of sad when you look at your own your own squad. I mean, both of these leagues, I'm in leagues with super smart, very good players. And so like, I, nothing gets by these guys. Like I, I've got dollars added to Joe Ryan for crying out loud. Like, can I just have my $2 or $3 Joe Ryan and live in peace? Nope. Dollars added on. So there, there's, it is a ruthless process. It is. It is. But it's a cool thing and it does balance the economics a little bit and does some fun stuff for the league. And so I always enjoy it. Yeah. But we're now sort of through that arbitration period and we're now hitting the point of the off season where you got to start thinking about putting together a roster for 2022. seems like a crazy thing to be doing, but that's where we are now, right? Yeah, we're, we're definitely there. I mean, regardless of your keeper size, right? Like your, your position flexibility, which, you know, is what we're working up towards is something you want to keep in mind. There's like, there's always something to be thinking about regarding your team in a long-term setting, obviously not new, but definitely in keeper leagues as well. And that's hopefully what we're going to break down today. So let's, let's start with that. What do you do? to like, how do you look at your roster tactically? How do you look at your roster? What are the things you do to say like, okay, where am I in good shape? Where am I struggling? What do I need to adjust? Yeah. Um, I think so to start like this process of looking at your roster and seeing where it's at and what you need to adjust for me, this actually begins depending on where my team is in the standings months ago. Right. And, and an example of this, and I, I put it in the notes was, I was looking at my roster in the Otnu League that I was added to. And again, this holds up for keeper leagues as well, right? Like, especially those deeper keeper leagues. And I was like, what, what are potential problems that I could maybe address right now for a dollar? But if I let these players get to auction, it could be a little bit more expensive. And of course, adding them in Otnu, you're going to add at least $2. They're going to bump up to three if you get them in auction. But that, that could be potentially fine, depending on what you're comfortable doing. And I'm really glad I did. And this is eventually going to relate to the Otnu question of the day. But one thing I did in the Otnu League I was added to was, first of all, it's a two-catcher league. And my catchers were Buster Posey and a $9 going to be $11 Austin Nola. And I said, there's no way I'm keeping that Austin Nola, even though I like him. I'm not keeping him for $11. So with it being a two-catcher league and those being the only two catchers on my roster, I went and I bid on Mike Zunino, who finished with 31 homers. He's not great. It's a It's a standard rotisserie league, so... You know, the, the homers I'll take, the batting average is going to be a bummer, but that is what it is. And I was able to get him for a dollar. So now in a two-catcher league, I'm going to have him for three. And obviously, that's even more important when you factor in that Buster Posey retired. So this process begins a lot earlier than you might expect. And that's really what you're trying to do. You're trying to figure out what positions are looking like they might be thin. What positions are you maybe coming from an area of strength with? Like, do you have three really strong first basemen? 
do you really want to commit to one of those being in utility all next year or could you flip them for an area of need? So this is a process that begins a long time ago and is going to continue really up through draft and auction season. Yeah, the one the one thing I'll comment on that, Otter knew it's a weird quirk. So I know the league that you and I are playing in is a head-to-head and there's only one catcher spot. Season-long Otter new leagues have two catcher spots, but they're not true two-catcher leagues. So you are still capped at 162 total games at catcher. So that's an important little nugget there because it plays more like what it, what it really plays like it plays like a one catcher league where you can actually fill out your catcher games you know you think about traditional one catcher leagues where you only have one catcher spot and you're get like you're guessing every night if your catcher is going to start or not and if they do you use them and if they don't maybe use them anyways because it doesn't hurt or if you have two catchers you scramble at the last minute to replace one with the other the way that the auto new roster is set up with the two catcher spots means that if you've got two catchers you can play them both some days you can play only one of them you play none of them but at the end of the day, if you get 81 games in one of those spots and 81 games in the other, or if you get 100 games in one of those spots and 62 games in the other, you're going you're gonna to lose your ability to keep using either of them the rest of the way. So it will, it will cut you off at 162, and it plays more like a one-catcher league than a two. That is excellent context. So quick piece of advice for our listeners. Definitely know your league settings um, before <laughs> you start making roster moves. But I mean, either way, in this particular situation, it actually makes me even happier because not keeping Austin Nola and then Buster Posey retiring, having a $3 catcher who hit 30 homers last year in what is going to equate ultimately to a one catcher league does make me feel a lot better going into the auction. Yeah. And you're still going to want, I mean, like I have never carried only one catcher in an auto new league. Like you need to carry two catchers because you need to, you want to be able to fill out those games. You're going to want to carry two catchers. It's just, you can, like you can get away with a starter and a backup or something like that, but yeah, I mean, Zunino, I mean, in a five by five, if he is going to hit 30 to 40 bombs for you, great. <laughs> That's still a good pick Could up. do a lot worse. Yes. Could do a lot worse. And he was the number seven catcher last year. Yeah. So have you, question, in, in Auto New, have you played around with the roster organizer? I have, yeah. So both both my like lineups are like ready to go. I have the guys I want to cut. I've got the guys I'm going to keep. I can see what my especially, you know, tomorrow is going to make it even nicer because I'll know exactly where I'm going to stand in terms of salary. So yeah, the roster organizer has been huge for me. Yeah. So if you're, if you're in an auto league, if you click your team name on that, that sort of menu bar header line at the top during the off season, instead of taking you to your lineups, it takes this thing called the roster organizer. You can actually access it during the season as well, but it's so valuable right now. Basically it is a lineup page, but in addition to your lineup and your bench, you also have a miners section an injured section, a cut section, and a trade section under both your offense and your pitching. And so like, you know, in league one right now, I have a lineup set. I can see immediately, see, am I giving away any information here? I have a gap at shortstop. I don't think that's giving away any information that my my opponents can exploit. If it is, so be it. I have a gap at shortstop. I've got some other guys in my lineup who maybe I shouldn't, so I got to figure that out too. But then I've got identified like, oh, this guy might be a trade candidate. These guys are probably cuts. It doesn't make cuts. It doesn't trade people. Like nothing, there's no definitive action that takes place there. But it's a really, really nice way to track what's going on on your team through the offseason. And even in leagues, like in my non-auto new leagues, I basically create a spreadsheet that does the same thing. Like I've got a a spreadsheet for my CBS league that I've talked about with with you guys on the show a lot of times. I've got a spreadsheet that has my full roster, their price for next season, a keep or cut 
or sometimes a maybe. It's usually just a straight yes or no, I'm going to keep them or I'm not going to keep them. And then I build a depth chart next to that and it allows me to track salary, how much salary I'm keeping, what positions I need to fill. And I'll also even go through and put in like a loose budget for the open positions. Like, okay, I'm keeping these guys. I've got this much salary capped. I know I need a shortstop. I know I need a third baseman and I know I need one more outfielder at least. If I want to put 30 bucks at each of those positions, what does that leave me to fill out the rest of my roster? And I can start to figure out like, oh crap, I actually can't afford to build this team. So I got to find a way to get cheaper or like, oh, I've got a ton of money left over. I can go pick up some salary this off season. So I tried to spend a lot of time early in the off season figuring that stuff out. Like the last thing I want to do is be like, wow, I can make this trade, you know, in an auto new league, I can make a trade for like a $50 Juan Soto, who I think is a stud and super worth it at $50 and find out that like, okay, I made that trade and now I actually can't afford to keep my team together. And so I've got to make some other cuts because of it. Like, would I still make that trade? Probably because it's still a $50 one. So do I? I'd still be thrilled to have him. But you want to know what that impact is on your roster. And if you don't have sort of a, a rough budget, it doesn't have to be the budget you actually use for the auction. It doesn't have to be something you're committing yourself to, but something that just at least, at least lets you think like, how does this all fit together? Is this going to be a good choice? It's a, take the time to do it. It's worth it. And that's not just an odd new thing, right? I mean, like knowing what picks you're going to have in the draft, depending on what players you decide to keep or just understanding what your depth is on your on your keeper league team at a particular position is obviously super helpful going into not just the drafts, but but definitely when you're making moves and stuff like that. And one thing, Chad, that I'm, I'm keeping an eye on is this third base situation where Outside of like, I don't know, the top three or four, like Jose Ramirez is as elite as it gets, right? I mean, arguably top three, top five player. Rafael Devers and Manny Machado, very good. Austin Riley just had a breakout if you want to include him in that class. And then there's kind of like this noticeable drop off if you account for, you know, the step backs that Nolan Arenado took and Alex Bregman coming off wrist surgery and a poor season and injuries and so on and so forth. So I'm kind of keeping that in mind as I'm looking at my teams, at least in my deeper keeper leagues where like, you know, it's not an issue right now if it's a keep three, keep four, but certainly not new where I'm deciding to not keep a $35 Alex Bregman, which I think is the reasonable move. That's a very expensive Alex Bregman. But now I'm going into the auction in an extremely deep odd new league without the weakest position outside of catcher. And that's, I don't know, I feel like that's something I have to keep in mind. Yeah, it's something to, to, to think about for sure. And I, I did some, so I've been doing some work on positional scarcity and positional eligibility in specifically in auto new leagues over at Fangraphs. And my most recent article, which is a couple weeks old now, since I was on vacation this week, I got to get back to get back to it this week. But my, my most recent article over there looked at positional production across leagues. And and what I basically did was take 10 auto new points leagues. And there's a there is a page where you can see for each team what production they got by position. And so it'll actually tell you like you can go see for your team you got 158 games at third base and scored this many points and this many points per game. So I took 10 different leagues and sort of averaged them out across their positions to get a sense of like, what was the overall production by position in auto new and third base actually graded out better than I expected in terms of the production people got. But there's a couple of things that are, that are skewing that I think one is 
Vlad Guerrero Jr. was a third base eligible on a new player this year, and he won't be for 2022. And so every single league had one team that got absolutely bonkers production at third base because they dropped Vlad into that spot on opening day and never had to think about it again. So that that pulled up the entire position. But it's just it is just generally a top heavy position right now. And a lot of teams did pretty poorly there. I did like there's there's a table in that article that looks at at quartile analysis and the number of basically if you take all of those position team combinations and there's 960 pairs of positions and teams that I looked at and you rank them from the best position team combo so it's a position team team combo in this case is like Pete's team at third base Chad's team at first base if you rank all 960 of those third base had a, a decent number of of teams that scored in the top quartile, but it also was very evenly spread all the way down to the bottom quartile. And so what that what that tells you is like if you don't if you don't get good production at third base, there's a good chance you get really bad production at third base. The only positions that really graded out worse, like noticeably worse, were second base and catcher. Outfield grades out a little bit worse, but not really, again, because of that sort of top-heavy nature of first base and getting rid of Vlad and stuff like that. But yeah, third base is a weird position this year. And I don't know, I like we did that that mock draft for pitcher list with, with Nick and everybody, and I sort of, I don't know, I, I feel like I should have moved quicker to make sure I had a top third baseman. Like I sort of think in in drafts, I'm going to be looking at third base in the you know the first second round. I'm probably moving Jose Ramirez a little bit up my board. I already had him pretty high in the first round, anyways. But I'd probably act a little quicker on him because I think you're right. I think there are some really good third basemen, and then it gets ugly fast. It does, and you know you brought up second base grading out worse, and I, I'm not going to say I'm surprised by that, especially when you consider, like you said, Vlad was third base eligible, and I think that is really skewing the numbers. But also, you just look at the positions themselves and 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 projecting forward. I mean, you had guys late that were kind of blossoming, like Gavin Lux, like Jazz Chisholm, who I think are going to improve and deepen second base. Whereas at third base, I mean, it was a lot of veterans who were just all of a sudden looking like, wait a second, this isn't the player that we remember. I mean, Eugenio Suarez fell off the face of the earth. Matt Chapman was nowhere to be found. Arenado, as I mentioned, his production cut off quite a bit moving uh, to St. Louis. So it's you know, it's not just like, all right, last year, it's getting closer. I think this year, based on what we're seeing now, and to be fair, I mean, we said this going into last year about like first base and first base ended up being fine. But just as it stands right now, it's kind of kind of concerning. And th- yeah. there could be guys that end up moving to third base that helps deepen the position. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I, that's still a possibility. That's true. And I think if you if you look at that draft that I mentioned, Jose Ramirez was the only third baseman who went in the first round. Rafael Devers was the only one who went in the second. Machado was the only one who went in the third. None went in the fourth. Riley was the only one in the fifth. And then in the sixth, you had Arenado, I took Bregman, and Rendon. And like, then there were no more third basemen until the ninth round. And the next one was Key Brian Hayes. And so like, I I don't know. I like I didn't feel great about Bregman in the sixth, but I also didn't want to get stuck choosing between I don't know. I like Justin Turner in the twelfth might have been a, a better, you know, value than I got for Bregman in the sixth. But and that's your pick, the Turner pick in the twelfth. That was a good pick. But like 
after you get past, I don't even, I don't even think Devers, who is the third, or uh, Riley, I mean, who is the third one off the board, is that safe? Like he's got strikeout issues and doesn't have a super long track record. And I'm a bit, I like Austin Riley. I was an Austin Riley believer before last season, so I'm, I'm, I'm in on Austin Riley. But like, there, you, you got a lot of risk. I mean, let's put it this way. Austin Riley went in the fifth. The second baseman who went in the fifth were Brandon Lau, Jose Altuve, and Ketel Marte. Do you feel better about second base with Altuve or Lau or about third base with with Riley? Like, I would feel much better about that situation at second base for sure. Yeah, and that could be that could be previous seasons like coming into play where it's like just this anxiety about second base. Sure. I, I do. I'm like, I'm with you. I like Riley, but you, you are still... If you're thinking about position this early in the draft, you are kind of compromising, I think, unless you're getting one of those top three names. Because I think Ramirez, Devers, and Machado, I mean, R- Ramirez clearly above the others because of speed. But at the end of the day, it wouldn't really surprise me if they fall in any kind of order one through three. After that, it is. It's compromising. I mean, Bregman, Arenado, and Rendon are all coming off of like massively down seasons. And by taking those guys to adjust for position, you're passing up on on studs like, I don't know, Max Muncy, who's consistently awesome, or or Correa, or Aloy, who I think is obviously only going to go up from here. So it is. It's a bit of compromising after those top four, which is not the has not been the case in the past, and is not the case for every position. So in in a keeper league, in an auto new league or a keeper league, are you doing anything about that right now? Are you are you actively seeking out third baseman on the trade market or anything like that? No. If I'm doing something like that, it's it's almost the opposite where I want to be coming from a position of strength. So if I'm the guy who's somehow sitting there with, so I'm in a, I'm in a dynasty where I have both Manny Machado and Rafael Devers. Yeah. I, I, someone that's worried about third base and and they're rocking right now with like Justin Turner or something like that, who I, again, I do like, but obviously in a long-term league, you know, how much, how much are you depending on there? I'll try to definitely at least kick the tires on, on both Devers and Machado to this owner. But Otherwise, no, I'm not coming from a position of weakness in November to address a positional need. And part of that, too, is right. Like what, what we just talked about that moves this offseason could move guys around like there's been rumors. And I don't I, I'm a Red Sox fan. I think everybody knows that. Like, I'm not going to try and, and make it seem like this is some crazy Red Sox fan take. But if the Red Sox decide, you know what, let's allocate a ton of money to Carlos Correa or let's allocate a ton of money to Marcus Semien or any of these other shortstops in the market that potentially could move Xander Bogarts to second base. And I think that's worth keeping in mind. It's not third base, obviously, but to to bring this conversation outside of the confines of third base, there will be guys who between now and the start of the season switch positions, and that might open things up for your keeper roster. So if that is a possibility, I wouldn't do anything drastic. And I definitely wouldn't in November come from a place of weakness to address a positional need. Is there anybody you can think of other than Bogarts that you think like, oh, this guy might end up in a new spot? A new spot, not... Re- I mean, so... Looking at third base and just seeing how thin it was, not to keep bringing the conversation back to that, I was looking at prospects and like it's even thin there. I I know Torkelson will be up soon. I don't know in what formats where he'll have third base eligibility because I'm pretty sure he's coming up as a first baseman. But after that, in prospect rankings, it's like Nolan Gorman, who was very good last year and is a top 30 prospect and and will immediately receive playing time. So I'm, I'm moderately interested. They were playing Gorman at second base for a while last year, right? In the minors. Yeah, they were. And and that's because they got Arenado and that that will. But when he gets called up, I think in every format, he will have third base eligibility, obviously, until the 2023 season, unless something happens to Arenado. And so anyway, long story short, that could move Edmund 
that will move Edmund to shortstop. So he'll regain that position eligibility. So just keeping that in mind, but Chad, you and I took advantage of this last year, not to once again, toot our own horns on this. It's just the example that keeps coming to mind. It's like nobody seemed to recognize that Marcus Semyon was going to gain second base eligibility, right? which on our boards last year made him go from the deepest position of shortstop to the second shallowest at second base. That's huge. So like doing something drastic in November for that maybe is, is is stretching it and worrying way too much about about position eligibility, but it's something to keep in mind and, and can deepen your roster if you take advantage of it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I do think in for me, I I tend to be a value first guy at this point in the offseason, right? I just want to like if I can, if I find a trade that is I think just I get better value than the than I'm giving up, I'll do it. And I sort of know I'll let the positions figure themselves out later. But I wouldn't say I go after and like aggressively target a position. But if I need a third baseman and I'm worried about the depth there and I see that somebody's dangling a third baseman on the trade market, I'll go ask. And I will be a little bit more aggressive in trying to get a deal done. I'm still not going to do it unless I think the value's right, right? I'm not going to pay $1.50 for a dollar player just because they fill a position. I might do that in season. I might do that even at the auction, right? If I get into the auction, I still need a third baseman and I think there's a $40 Machado out there and I have to pay 50 to get him fine. Like I'll, I'll live with that if I need to. Same thing like in season, if I'm trying to win and I need a third baseman and the only thing I can do is make a trade where I'm overpaying, you know, flags fly forever. So I might, I might just go do that. But at this point, I'm not going to do that. But what I will do is look around and see if I can't find opportunities to make deals. I also think this is a time of year where a lot of managers they're not thinking about setting lineups. They're not thinking about roster construction. They're not thinking about positional scarcity. And you may be able to take advantage of that and and fill a, a tough-to-fill position because somebody sort of isn't thinking about it. It's not top of mind for them right now because they're not setting their lineup day-to-day. And so they're not realizing day-to-day that they're in trouble at third base, right? You realize that in season. In season, you're like, every day, I got to set a third baseman and all my choices are terrible. So zigging when everyone else is zagging is definitely, you know, something I'd be interested in doing, especially because I think probably the the scarcity of the third base position is not on the top of everyone's radar right now. With that said, I do this a little bit more when it comes to balancing hitting and pitching. So it's not necessarily specific hitter positions, but and this holds up even for shallow keeper leagues where like to put it simply, if it's a three keeper, I'd rather have two bats and a pitcher than two pitchers in a bat. So striking balance there, I think, is important when it comes to balancing your hitting and your pitching. But when it comes to specific positions, like Chad said, at this point, I'm not overpaying. When it comes time for draft season, though, or or auctions, then yeah, of course, overpay if if it's going to bring your team to the next level. Reach in the draft to, to make sure you get your guy. Like Justin Turner felt like he went late in that mock draft. But man, if I and, and, and technically it was a reach according to the rankings, but there are no rankings at this point. So whatever. But if I didn't get him, then it was about to fall off a cliff. So it was like potentially reach for Justin Turner. I don't know if anyone else is going to go for him. But if I don't do this, third base is going to get disgusting very quickly. So it it really is, you know, just base it around your team. But at this point, I wouldn't stress about position scarcity. Yeah, and we, we've talked a lot about third base, but the positions where I'm I'm sort of most concerned this year are catcher and second base. Second base is a little weird because there's a lot of second base shortstop eligible players and that like that can throw things off a little bit catcher. I just feel like again, looking at that, that draft we did 
And and by the way, we're going to have some some fun data starting with our next episode because we are starting an auto new mock auction tomorrow. And so tomorrow morning, we're going to be starting an auction. It's gonna, it should be a lot of fun. Pete and I are both in it. A few of the other folks from Pitcher List, our podcast manager, Adam Howe, is in there. Mark McElroy, who joined us last week or two weeks ago, is in there. Got a couple guys from, from Fangraphs, a, a handful of AutoNew experts, guys, guys who've been playing AutoNew for a long time, even if they're not writing anywhere. Uh, Eno Saris of The Athletic is joining us. We've got a, a, a 12-team mock auction that's going to start up tomorrow. We'll get a link out so people can follow along because I believe you can watch that live as it unfolds. It's a slow auction, so it's going to take some time. But it's, I'm really excited about that because we'll be able to move away from using sort of generic mock draft data that I don't think is really a good fit for auto new and be able to use better auto new data. But for now, using that mock draft and looking at catcher, Salvador Perez went in the third round of that draft, which felt crazy early to me, but you know, he was a really good catcher. So, okay, fine. <laughs> then there was nothing till the ninth. And in the ninth round, you had JT Real Muto. In the 10th, you had Will Smith. In the 11th, you had Yasmani Grandal and then Buster Posey. And man, catcher gets... And so, first of all, I made that Buster Posey pick in the 12th. I was super happy with that. He was the fifth catcher <laughs> off the board. I think he I think he is better than the fifth best catcher for fantasy, except he retired afterwards. I totally didn't see that coming. And maybe I should have. Maybe I should have predicted that there was a chance he would just go out on top. You know, this is a guy who who took off the 2020 season basically to spend time with his kids. So like, you know, I don't want to say baseball isn't important to Buster Posey because that'd be a silly thing to say. Of course, baseball is important to him, but he is absolutely the kind of guy who's like, there's other stuff going on. This isn't, it's not the only thing in my life. And it's, it's maybe not a surprise that he of all people was like, forget it. I'm going to go. I mean, I think uh, the perfect example of this is, I don't, did you see any of his farewell press conference? I didn't. But he also he also has nothing left to prove, right? Yeah, he's, I mean, he's he's got multiple rings. He has established like the only thing he could maybe do is accumulate some stats towards the Hall of Fame credentials. Which uh, you know, the the to me the debate on on Posey is not whether or not he's a Hall of Famer. He is. It's whether or not he'll actually get voted in. Because I do think there's some, like his his stats fall a little short in some cases. I think he should get in. But at his his farewell press conference, he was sitting next to his wife, and the part of the press conference, you know, guys. You see these guys who get emotional at the press conference talking about giving up the game and how much they love Lula. The only point he really got super emotional was talking about how much his wife meant him and how much she'd been supporting him over the years and stuff like that. Like this guy has clearly got other stuff going on in his life that he cares about and good for him for getting out when he did. Uh, it completely ruined my team in a draft that we're luckily not actually playing out the league, but there, there are more important things in my team. But the, the point really here is in the first 11 rounds of that draft, if you get rid of Posey, there were four catchers that went. Perez, Real Muto, Smith, Grandal. The next catchers off the board were in the 15th round, and they were Gary Sanchez and Kiebert Ruiz. Now, I like Kiebert Ruiz. He could be really good. He also might be terrible. We have no idea. Gary Sanchez could hit a lot of home runs, also could lose his job very quickly. Mike Zanino went after that. Like It just gets ugly fast. And... The difference to me this year with catcher versus past years is in the past, I felt like catcher was, it was such a wasteland and there was like one or two good catchers and it just wasn't worth paying the price for those guys because 10 teams in your league were going to be terrible at catcher. 
This year, it feels like, I don't know. I think you're going to have, you're going to have Perez, Smith, Grendahl, and Real Muto are going to be good. And then there's a good chance that some one or two other guys, Zuninho is going to hit a bunch of home runs again. Maybe Sanchez has a good season. Maybe Ruiz breaks out. Like there will be other catchers who are good. And all of a sudden, half your league does well at catcher. I think Mitch Garver was sort of got lost a little bit this year, but actually was excellent. If he gets more of a full-time role next year and stays healthy, he could be in that category. And instead of feeling like, okay, you can punt catcher because half the league is punting, you know, more than half the league is punting catcher anyways. I now sort of feel like if you don't get good production at catcher, you you end up in a really bad spot. And, And going back to that quartile data, I was talking about before when I was looking at the positional thing, 13 teams got top quartile production out of catcher out of 14 got second quartile production, 65 got fourth quartile production. So what that means basically in short is there were a handful of teams, a couple teams per league that got above average production out of their catchers, another group that got decent production. And then half of these leagues got just atrociously bad production out of their catchers. And I, I'm a little, it almost feels like if it were 90% of leagues got terrible production, then you can be one of them. But if half of the leagues do, to me, it's really important to be in that half that doesn't. And so I, catcher is a position where I think I'm going to be a little more aggressive than I have been in the past. That's sort of what I'm, what I'm finding right now. And you're not wrong. And obviously catcher is a lot more thin than third base, especially when you take away one of the only pillars at the position in Buster Posey. But I guess I'm not as stressed about catcher in second base than I am with third base for a couple of reasons and they're they're really draft related number one is when those good catchers and I, I have no interest in Salvador Perez in the third round but when the Will Smith Yasmati Grandal group begins to go off the board I'm very comfortable taking a catcher there like I, I I will have no regret I don't feel like I'm compromising much I'll gladly take you know Will Smith in the ninth round or, or whatever it takes to get him even if it's a little bit higher I think that's who I ended up with in this draft I'm comfortable with that at second base when it's time to reach for a second baseman, I feel comfortable again. Like I, I have no problem, you know, if it's the fifth round and I have to take Cattell Marte over Nick Castellanos, even though I think Castellanos will have better numbers across the board. I'm okay doing that because of the position. But with third base, when I have to compromise and take someone like Rendon, Arenado, or Bregman, I feel like you're compromising so much to get one of those guys. And there is a chance that blows up in your face. So if catcher was getting pushed up as much as those third basemen were, or if second base was, then yeah, I, I'd, I'd be concerned. But because of that, I feel like I'll still end up with a solid second baseman, even though I had to reach. I'll still end up with a solid catcher, even though I had to reach. But third base, I'm not, I'm not going to be willing to pass up like Aaron Judge for Austin Riley. Like I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And that might happen in a few drafts. And I feel like you're passing up way too much in those instances. And I don't mean to pick on Austin Riley. Like I'm with you. I I like him, but man, there's obviously a drop off, at least in terms of consistency and and what we kind of expect from these players and what we've gotten over the last three seasons after those top three. And that just, I guess, concerns me more. So you're, you're, I, I agree with the overall point, right? Second base, potentially thinner. I think you could make the case it's as deep. And and as you said, the further down you go, it, it, it stays at least closer to the beginning than third base does it like the the talent does not drop off quite as drastically that catcher that's obviously not the case it's going to get a lot more thinner but because of where these guys at least i anticipate them going in the drafts and based on this mock i feel much more comfortable taking them at those spots 
than otherwise. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It, it, it doesn't hurt as bad to reach in the 12th or 13th or 14th rounds. It does to hurt reach in the 6th. And so that, that's a really good call. And I think the auction or the auto new angle on that is like, if you have to overpay at 5 or $6 for a $3 catcher because you really think that $3 catcher is the better option, that doesn't hurt nearly as much as paying $30 for a $15 third baseman. And I think that's going to happen in some cases. So that, that's a really good call. We've got a couple other topics we want to cover, but we've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with you. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show all right, welcome back. We just talked a lot about roster building and positional eligibility. The other thing that's going on right now that is sort of an interesting topic, I think, is there are free agents and trade talks and all sorts of things happening in Major League Baseball right now. And we don't know where guys are going to land. We don't know what a lot of, you know, you, you mentioned before, Pete, like some guys are going to change positions because of this. We don't know what things are going to look like, but there's a lot of people we don't even know what team they're going to be on particularly at the shortstop position. My goodness, it seems like half the top shortstops are moving. <laughs> so what we want to do now is talk a little bit. We did this around the trade deadline as well. We want to talk a little bit about where could guys end up that would be a good fit for them from a fantasy perspective. This is not a who do we think should sign them. This is not a who do we hope they sign with. This is sort of a from a fantasy perspective, what is a landing spot that is interesting and realistic? So part of that realistic is, it'd be real easy to be like, what if Corey Seager signed with the Rockies and also Carlos Correa signed with the Rockies and also Matt Olson got traded to the Rockies. Uh, and that's, that's not, I mean, I guess it could happen. I don't know. There's probably some Rockies no. listening right now. Who's like, Oh my God, could that really, no. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's exceedingly unlikely. So we're going to try to look at more realistic landing spots. And I think we should start right at the top of at least what I believe is the top of the free agent market with, with Corey Seager. He is, you know, a good, talented, still young shortstop. He is going to get a very large contract wherever he ends up. There's, I mean, I, I personally, I think there's a real good chance he just ends up back in LA. Uh, the Dodgers are, they have money to spend and they're not afraid to spend it and they're going to need a shortstop if he leaves. But Anywhere more interesting you think he could end up? Anywhere you'd be like, oh, this would be fantastic for him that, that you think is realistic? There is. And and I if, before I even say that team, and I think everybody knows what team that's going to be because it's where he's been rumored pretty much all offseason, I'm not so convinced the Dodgers are going to try as hard to bring him back. I mean, they extended him the qualifying offer, obviously rejected. Like, I mean, it's, it's Corey Seager. He's not going to take the qualifying offer. But like, 
you've got Trey Turner, a shortstop, and Gavin Lux was, I know there's, there weren't a lot of extra base hits in there. It was kind of BABIP driven, whatever it was with, with Gavin Lux down the stretch, but he's still the former top prospect who's super young, who they have as a cheap op- option at second base. And I get it. Like the Dodgers are not the team to take the quote cheap option. But at, at some point, they have to address pitching, which sounds crazy, crazy to say because it's the Dodgers. But they didn't even extend a qualifying offer to Clayton Kershaw, which is very concerning to me because he's one of the, at least I view, one of the best pitchers in baseball, a cornerstone of that franchise. He's still only 34. It feels like he's 47 years old, but he's only 34. And you're not going to pay him, what, like $18 million to pitch for you for one year? That's that's concerning to me. So assuming Kershaw's gone, May's still dealing with, with Tommy John surgery. Who knows when he's going to be coming back? We all know that the situation with Trevor Bauer, like all of a sudden, and Max Scherzer's a free agent. All of a sudden, it's like that entire rotation. It gets me really excited about Tony Gonsolin, who I took in that that mock draft. Anyway, I think they're going to have to allocate assets to pitching before they consider signing one of the top free agents on the market. As crazy as it sounds, because I get it, it's the Dodgers, it's unlimited money. At some point, though, it, it does run out. So the obvious team is the Yankees. I think Seager is very likely to end up as a New York Yankee. I don't see why they wouldn't want him. He's kind of what they need, a nice left-handed bat to balance out all that right-handed power. They obviously have the short porch in right field, which Seager did pull the ball more than ever in in 2020, which I kind of view as like another Seager breakout. It's when, I mean, after the 2020 season, as you know, Chad, I was drafting Corey Seager as basically a second round bat. And in my head, I was getting, I mean, I was getting him in the third and fourth. And in my head, he was a second round bat. I think he's super elite. And you plug him into that lineup, he gets to hit regularly in Camden and Fenway. Like, I think he can maintain an elite situation that the Dodgers provide for him in more hitter friendly parks on a great team, left handed swing in a good park for it. Like, I think the Yankees are the obvious answer. And if he does sign like an eight year, nine year, 10 year deal with the Yankees, he's going to be a fantasy stud in keeper leagues for years. And and that's my dream destination for him. Even as a Red Sox fan, I just think the fantasy value for Seager in New York is huge. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and I do think there's a good chance he ends up there. It'll be it'll be sort of fascinating to see what the Dodgers do because I maybe it's just I don't believe in Lux. Like maybe that's what it comes down to. And it's a question of how much they believe in Lux because I think they've behaved in a way that would suggest they aren't that convinced that Lux is that good because they've refused to sort of give him consistent playing time. And even the fact that they went out and traded for Trey Turner is like, you had Lux right there. You could have used him if you felt like you need, but I will, we'll have to see what happens with them. If they, if they've been just sort of waiting for Lux to be ready and now they think he's ready, I think you could be right. I think if they don't fully believe in him, then they're going to do something else to address that other middle infield spot along with Turner. And if it's not Seager, it'll be, it'll be someone didn't they offer a, a qualifying offer to Chris Taylor as well? I'm trying to remember. I think they, they did. did. They did. He has a qualifying offer. So that could be another cheaper option than Seager. Yeah, maybe. Well, I mean, cheaper than Seager, yeah. But I think... Oh, he'll get paid. Taylor, I mean, it's fascinating because you think of him as this like... Utility guy. Utility guy. <laughs> he sort of plays all over. He's not really a star. But then you start thinking about the the free agent market for Chris Taylor. And it's everybody. It's literally every team. There's not a single team in baseball that doesn't have a use for him because every team has an opening at a position. Yeah. Play all of them. Right. And so, and his ability to play all of them means that like you could sign him and still sign literally anyone else you want because he's not blocking anybody because he can just move. And yeah, his, I feel like, I feel like he's going to get a contract that surprises people because there's going to be a bidding war for him. And, and maybe even more so than there is for like, 
like Seager, there will be a bidding war for Seager. He's going to get a huge contract, but somebody's going to be like, yeah, I could get Seager, but if I don't get Seager, I'll get Simeon. If I don't get Simeon, I'll get Correa. If I don't get Correa, I'll get Story. Like there's going to be options out there. That's not true for Taylor. There is no, like if you want that, you, that flexibility to play anywhere, it's him or it's nothing. There's no one else out there who can do that at the level he can. So it'll be, it'll be real interesting. And financially speaking, I mean, obviously teams have a lot more flexibility to bring in a player like Chris Taylor than the contract it's going to take for Corey Seager. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of guys who can play multiple positions, at least two positions, Javier Baez has played both second base and shortstop at a very high level throughout his career. His time in New York was brief and we'll say tumultuous. <laughs> there was the 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 whole, there was all sorts of stuff going on there. I really, when he went to New York, I was like, he and Lindor, like he and Lindor are, are good friends and have been for a long time. And I was like, they're going to like have a ball. They're going to play better playing together. And they're going to be the, you know, the up the middle combo for that team for the next decade. And then it didn't really play out that way. And now I feel like he's probably not going to end up back in New York, but anywhere you think he could end up, that'd be a good, good landing spot for him. So for him, I mean, no, I mean, I, I, like anywhere. Or, or let me take the cop out. I think he should go to the Rockies. I think Baez would have a big year in Colorado. With that said, I do like the idea of Javi Baez going to the Giants. Now, Javi Baez himself, I'm not, I never roster him. I don't know if in, in the 15 years I've been playing fantasy baseball, if I've ever rostered Javier Baez. It's just a profile I don't like. He relies way way too much on a high BABIP, which like for him, for his career has been sustainable. But if all you're relying on is BABIP and a a hard contact rate and you strike out over 30% of the time, like for a fantasy profile, it's not that sustainable. But what I do like about him going to the Giants is, well, Javi Baez and Brandon Crawford would be as elite up the middle as you could possibly imagine. Those two are second and 10th respectively in all of baseball in outs against average since 2019. So we're talking two absolutely elite defenders and Baez's defense went down a little bit last year. Whatever. We, we, he's still an elite defender, even at second base as opposed to shortstop. If you bring in Javi Baez at second and you have Brandon Crawford at shortstop, well, obviously fantasy wise for those two, it's not that big of a deal, but fantasy wise for Logan Webb, who has a 60% ground ball rate, that's huge. That's making me feel real comfortable. He's got that spacious outfield if hitters are able to get the ball in the air. And if they hit it on the ground, they have two of the best range defenders in Major League Baseball. So from a fantasy perspective and kind of an unorthodox approach, I'd like to see Baez go to the Giants. I mean, even if like if Desclafani returns, he's a high, a decently high ground ball percentage guy. Gosman as well. Like they're and obviously their closer, Tyler Rogers, like there's a lot to like there. They had the highest ground ball rate of all teams in Major League Baseball in 2021. So you add in an elite defender at second base, I'm going to like them that much more. Well, they're pitchers anyway. It's a really interesting one because, you know, when I when I first was was thinking about Baez, I had sort of the same thoughts you do from an offensive perspective. Like, I just don't trust the sustainability of his offense. And there's it seems like every league I'm in, there's somebody who values him much closer to that top tier of middle infielders than I do. And so he never ends up on my roster. And so... When we were thinking about where he could end up, but for a while I was like, I don't know. I'm not sure I even care where he ends up because he's not going to be on my team wherever it is anyways. But San Francisco is is interesting. I think the other thing about San Francisco that's sort of fascinating to me is they have done such a good job from a coaching and player development perspective for veteran players and helping them sort of maximize what they're capable of. and. 
at, at some levels, like Baez is still like a toolsy guy who hasn't quite put it all together in a, in a weird way, which seems like a strange thing to say for a guy with his profile, but that's, that's sort of how I view him. And I kind of love the idea of him getting with a really elite coaching staff and seeing maybe they can help him with cutting down on some of those strikeouts and finding a way to be a little bit more sustainable at the plate. It could be, I don't know, it's not going to be enough to make me draft him. I'll still end up, I'm not going to pay for him because someone else will always pay more than me. But I'd be, it's an interesting landing spot for him beyond just the defensive value he brings, which as you point out is is high and would be a, a real nice ad for them. So let's talk about a trade candidate real quick. And this is a guy who I'm not actually sure it matters where he gets traded exactly. Oakland is, it sounds like Oakland's trading everybody. Uh, if you're, I don't, I don't even know who they might keep. Maybe nobody. And Matt Olson could be on the move. And so I'm going to start by saying this. I love Matt Olson. I would be targeting Matt Olson for trade if he's not on my roster already in any league where I could target him for trade. If you can trade for him now before the A's make a move, I would do it because he could end up literally anywhere and it will be a better landing spot for him than where he's been. Oakland, there's a ton of foul territory. It is hard to hit home runs there. Olsen has been successful there because his on-base skills are are great. And so he, he's got skills that sort of overcome whatever park he's in. But basically anywhere he goes will be a big improvement in his home park. And so, you know, there, there's selfishly, I would love to see Cleveland make a play for him because Cleveland could use a first baseman. They Cleveland's got a ton, a ton, a ton of middle infield prospect depth that they could trade from to go get a guy like Olsen. Olsen is not super expensive. And so he fits Cleveland's budget. Like he would be the perfect, the perfect offseason addition for Cleveland. But I don't know how realistic that is. We'll have to see. But the thing that's interesting about Olsen is that because he's not expensive, he's just going to call like someone's going to have to be willing to pay for him from a prospect perspective, but not necessarily from a cash perspective. And so it gives him an opportunity to land in, boy, a lot of different places. He had 39 home runs this year. And there are, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 parks where he would have hit more than 39 home runs if they'd been his home park. Another couple that he was around 38, 39, around the same level he was in Oakland. And I, and I do think that that understates how much better he'd be somewhere else because of the number of fly, foul balls that turn into, you know, balls in the stands instead of outs and stuff like that. It's just a, it's just a brutal park to hit in. And I would, man, I would love to see him get out of there. I already have him on a handful of teams and I'm going to be trying to add him more places, especially if a trade becomes more and more likely. Yeah. And I mean, you know, if you're the athletics, you're coming off a season in which, you know, it was once like it was a pretty good season, but they missed the playoffs and they're clearly on the on the downward slope here. And and Matt Olson is almost like a get out of jail free card. I guess it's not free because you have to trade away Matt Olson in order to get something. But I mean, you're really talking about a complete package. You mentioned the affordable contract. Obviously, he's a tremendous bat. He's also an elite fielder, though, at first base. And so you really could take someone to the cleaners, trading Matt Olson and really maximizing that value, not waiting until the deadline, but doing it now. 
that I think would be a good reset for Oakland. I mean, their ace is what Chris Bassett, who's no young guy himself. What I am concerned about is once Matt Olson is traded, now all of a sudden Matt Chapman's value, which was already like in the gutter to me, is just awful. I mean, I was looking at what that lineup would be without Matt Olson on roster resource, and that is a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, but I think, you know, if Olson gets traded, I think they trade Chapman. And if Chapman and Olsen get traded, I think they might trade Sean Murphy. And like, there's rumors that they're listening on Bassett and Montas. And I, it's, I, wow, I, at Montas. this point, I'm not, Jesus. I'm not sure what to make of that team or what, what direction they're going to go. Are they really going to completely tear it down? It sounds like they might. And so Chapman, I mean, maybe Chapman a little bit falls into the Olsen category where he's not, he's not Matt Olsen, but where, you know, maybe he's a good buy low. He's coming off a down year. He has some an established track record of, of some success. He's going to have good major league baseball trade value regardless because of his defense at third base. And so maybe he ends up somewhere else and in a better situation and things get better for him. And given what we talked about with third base before, if Matt Chapman can suddenly find himself as a useful third baseman again for fantasy, that would be that, that's a big bonus because we need useful third baseman in fantasy, <laughs> but yeah, Ol- Olsen is the one that I'm, I'm more sort of intrigued by and seeing wh- where does he end up and not to go full Homer here, but considering just how bad the Red Sox fielding was last year, I mean, it was, it was awful. It, I coach middle school baseball, so I, I know bad fielding when I see it <laughs> and it was really bad. So any of these three names, and I'm going to include Baez in this could potentially be targets for them. Obviously, they've got Cassis at first base, so Olsen less of a priority. But if you move Matt Chapman to Fenway, which would bump Devers to first base for a year, and who knows if he can make that adjustment, but he's horrible at third base. All of a sudden, yeah, I'm more interested in Chapman. So agreed, there are definitely landing spots where these names get even more interesting. Did J.D. Martinez opting in hurt the Red Sox? Would they have been better off with him opting out and being able to reallocate those resources and say, like, plug in Devers at DH and get him off the field and go after a guy like whether it's going after a guy like Chapman via trade or via going after a Seager or a Correa and bumping Bogarts to third. Like does that hurt them that they've got him locked in at DH now? Uh, It's an odd situation where on one hand, like in the, in some ways, yes. First of all, fielding, which is maybe their biggest concern. It's even worse than their pitching. And we all know how unsustainable their first half pitching was. And they went on that hot streak as their number one concern, yes, it hurts them. But the hitting has to be there. We saw what happened to them. They they, they were in the driver's seat in that Astros series up two to one, hitting the crap out of the ball. And then all of a sudden, you know, Luis Garcia starts rubbing his hair and Fran Valdez starts rubbing his forehead. And all of a sudden we can't hit anymore. Hitting is still a priority. You've got to be able to hit the ball. And J.D. Martinez, you know, you've talked about this. I, I, I've seen it, right? He took a step back last year. But even J.D. Martinez taking a step back is still a great bat. So flexibility-wise, especially for fielding, it hurts them. But I'm not going to be upset that they they have an elite hitter coming back. And factor in that Bloom has said, we can still fit Kyle Schwarber in. Once he said that, I felt a lot better. I said, okay, you know what? This makes sense. We put Schwarber at first base for a year, and then J.D. Martinez's contract runs out. All of a sudden, Schwarber goes to DH, and Tristan Cassis goes to first base. The only problem with that is now you still have Rafael Devers at third base. So it, it does definitely come into play, but I'm not upset about it. Makes sense. So let's let's talk about Schwarber. You think he ends up back in, back in Boston? I would say it's highly unlikely now. I think he wants to come back. He 
not that I know the guy personally, but he said publicly that he wants to come back. Um, I think it was a great fit. He had a terrific season. My prediction, though, is that he does not come back. I think, you know, as we said, they have too many concerns already. Um, and, and so to bring back a lackluster fielder at first base when you already have one of the worst fielding infields, if not the worst fielding infield in baseball is obviously not great. They could, you know, there's been rumors about trying to trade Hunter Renfro, which would open things up for Schwarber in the outfield. But I don't know if that will materialize. But I do like the idea of Kyle Schwarber returning to Fenway. He was unbelievable for them once he got healthy and started playing a 231 ISO 957 OPS. Yes, power is tough for lefties in Fenway Park, but Schwerber's got that kind of power where it's like almost like it doesn't matter. He, he'll, for fantasy purposes, if he does return to Fenway, another reason I want him to come back is he'll regain first base eligibility pretty quickly. I think he only had nine starts there, maybe 10 appearances. So for some formats like Yahoo, you'll still have it. But for ESPN, where you need 15 the previous season or 10 the current season, he'll get that very quickly. And so all of a sudden, he goes from outfield to first base, and obviously first base is a lot more thin than outfield, so that's a good thing. But yeah, he was unbelievable at Fenway. It's a great lineup. I am worried if he ends up somewhere that you know, like Minnesota or something like that, where the offense isn't so great that like he might regress a little bit back to kind of what we expect from Kyle Schwarber. But staying in the middle of that Red Sox lineup allows him to continue to be elite, continue to play in great ballparks, and to continue to produce like he did for us down the stretch. Yeah, I th- I'm not. I think I'm not that worried about where Schwarber ends up. He's, he has played in, you know, last couple of years, he's played in three different parks. He's hitting all of them. He's played in three different lineups. He's hitting all of them. To me, he's the kind of guy who, from a fantasy perspective, like, yes, if he ends up in, you know, you're going to kill me for even suggesting this. If he ends up in Yankee stadium, he's going to hit a lot more home runs. and That'd be great if he, you know, but his skill set and his approach, it's a little bit like we were talking about with Matt Olson, where it's like Olson has a skill set that like, Oakland just didn't hurt him that much. And yes, it'll be great to get him out of Oakland, but it it just wasn't that big of a problem for him. I feel that way about Schwarber too, where it's just like, I don't think there's any park he would go to where I'd be like, wow, that's a bad landing spot for him. That's really too bad. You know, maybe in, you know, in a, in a traditional five by five where runs and RBIs really matter, like that changes things because you could end up in a bad lineup. But in general, like I, I'm going to, I'm going to be in on Schwarber no matter where he goes. I guess it's more just like taking advantage of the ceiling, right? Like I'm not going to be wor- I'm not going to be worried about him if he goes somewhere that's not great, but if he is in a place that's great, like Yankee Stadium, like the Red Sox lineup, then I think we could get close to like 2021 Giancarlo Stan production where he's hitting upper 30s, potentially 40 homers, he'll have more RBI. It's kind of weird how low of RBI Stan had, but like I think the the line would look kind of similar if he goes to a place, you know, I don't know, like the Giants. Not that they're a bad team. They're the best record in baseball. But you get what I'm saying? Like his numbers are are not going to be elite. So I think to maximize his ceiling, I'd love to see him go to a place like that. Got it. That makes sense. We haven't done an auto new question of the day in a little while. So I'm excited. We've got an auto new question of the day today. We do. Yeah. So it's going to go back to the catcher discussion. And basically with catcher being the most thin position and auto new leagues being super deep. And I mentioned my team in the notes where I have... Kybert Ruiz, Joey Bart, Omar Narvaez, and uh, Wilson Contreras. Obviously, a few of those guys are going to get cut. But like one team has four catchers that are going to be hopefully reasonable options in 2022. So you don't know what's going to be, avail- be available in auction. With a position this thin, like what are you thinking at this point if your situation at catcher is not looking good? Yeah, this is an interesting one. I mean, I mean, first of all, my, posi- my situation at catcher is often not looking good because <laughs> catcher is a 
It is a wasteland. I mean, I'm looking like my my League One team. I have a five dollar Austin Nola and a four dollar Dalton Varsho and a five dollar Travis Darno. I think those are the three catchers I have in that league. Uh, in League Thirteen, the league that you and I are in together, I have I have a, a relatively well priced a twelve dollar Salvador Perez, although he's about to get more expensive. Um, he's definitely being one of the guys who's being hit in arbitration. In League Thirty Two. I've got a $9 Sean Murphy, a $3 Francisco Mejia, and I think those are the only two catchers on my roster. Like, This is going to happen to me in a lot of leagues where I'm just in trouble at catcher. What is my strategy there? I, I think a couple of things. I think I am going to look at the trade market and see if there's catchers available. My guess is there's not, right? Because nobody... I shouldn't say nobody. Almost nobody is going to have the kind of depth at catcher where they can deal from it. You know, you gave the example of your team where you've got Ruiz and Bart and Narvaez and Contreras. You have a team like that. If there's a team like that in my league, I'm going to ping them. Contreras is maybe the one I'd want, but I might ping them on like Narvaez and just be like, okay, here's a guy who I think is productive and useful and at least gives me some some floor at the catcher position that I can accept. I love the idea of going into the season with like Bart and Ruiz, but I'd want someone else with them. And I don't really like carrying four catchers. And so I, I'm probably like at this point in the off season, I'll ping people and I'll ask around and, you know, Hey, is there somebody available? Would you be interested in in trading that catcher? But like, I, again, we talked about at the beginning, like I don't want to overpay because of positional issues. And there's so many things we don't know. And like, just as an example, I don't think it's a total long shot that we find out in in March that the Royals are going to have MJ Melendez come up and be their catcher while Sal Perez is DHing half the time or more. Like we'll have to see. They used him at DH a lot this year, right? I mean, that's part of the reason his he had so many home runs and he had that like the record he set this year was not home runs as a catcher. It was home runs for a player who primarily plays the catcher position because so many of his home runs were hit as a DH. Like maybe they, they lean in on that. I have a team where I've got a $17 Yasmani Grandal, a $5 Melendez and a $10 Alejandro Kirk. Like, I I don't know what to make of Kirk exactly and whether or not he's going to have a job, but I'm probably going to be shopping one or more of those guys just because I don't want to carry all of them. They're, there's a little too much risk in Kirk at $10 and Melendez at $5. And if I'm already spending 17 on Grandal, I don't want to spend a lot more. So I guess what I would say is this. If, if I'm on a team where I feel like I'm really strong at catcher, where I've got real depth at the position, and I can't... I'm trying to think of whether or not I have any leagues where I would say that's a, that's true. But if I had a league where I felt like I was really strong at catcher... I'd be shopping my catchers aggressively because literally everyone in your league needs a catcher because it's just such a hard position to fill. And so you have a real opportunity to get a a good return on those catchers. If I'm in trouble at catcher, I mean, I would make a trade for a catcher, right? Right. If the right trade comes along and I can get a a well-priced Wilson Contreras, Giazmani Grandal or JT Real Muto, fine. But my guess is that's not going to be easy to come by. And if it's not easy to come by, I'm not going to overpay for it. Like I would rather find myself in a situation where I go into the season 
gambling on Varsho, Zunino, and Bart. And carry those three, knowing that they all might be terrible and they all might be good. And if they're all terrible, then then maybe I overpay for catcher in May or June, right? I make a trade that I need to make. Uh, and again, I might even overpay for for catcher at auction if there's catchers at auction that are worth overpaying for. But I'm not I'm not going to force anything, right? It's sort of bringing us full circle to where we started this episode. Like, if I need a catcher, I'm going to shop for a catcher, and if I can get one, I'm going to do it because, and I'm going to be more willing to do it than I would be for a first baseman or a shortstop because I just don't know what's going to be available at auction, if anything. Whereas in outfield at first base at shortstop, like I, there will be guys available. The positions are so deep and there's so many good options that I don't have to to push for it now. You go into the auction without a catcher, you may be leaving the auction without a catcher. <laughs> I just don't know what's going to happen. I think Real Muto will be available in a lot of leagues because I think he went he he was being paid last season in auto new leagues as a truly elite player at the position and he was more good than great this year. And so I think it's not that I think people don't see him as a top 3 catcher anymore. It's just that it felt like last year it was like there's like $25 Real Muto and then a bunch of guys that you might pay like $10 for and then everybody who's really cheap. And now it feels more like he belongs with that other group of guys rather than being off on an island on his own. And so I expect him to be available a lot of places. And I don't know. If someone in your league is is trading a catcher and isn't going to make a reasonable trade, right? They're sitting there and just saying, look, nobody has a catcher. Everybody needs them. You're going to have to pay me way over value for whatever catcher it is I'm trading. Like I'll let someone else pay that price, and I'll just like if I if it means I have to overpay for Real Muto at auction, I'll overpay for Real Muto at auction. I would rather do that than overpay in trade capital today. And that makes sense. Like when thinking about it, I'm looking at like, okay, why would I do this now when we haven't even made cuts yet? And you know, you mentioned Real Muto, and I think that's that's obviously where the conversation needs to start. But like, you know, you mentioned you like my Wilson Contreras. Well, in the spirit of con- of transparency for the show, like I'll let you know, I plan on cutting Wilson Contreras because he's going to be $17. So all of a sudden, Wilson Contreras, JT Real Muto, like these guys are beginning to look like they're going to be available in the auction. So not that I would overpay to begin with. I'm with you. Like if a move comes to me or maybe I'll ping a couple guys, if I see like, all right, they have depth, maybe I can throw them something and land a Joey Bart or a Dalton Varsho, who I, I think would actually get pretty expensive besides the point. Well, I'm not going to do those, maybe even those moves, because it looks like there's going to be a lot of catchers at the auction. You guys kind of addressed this in your, in our last episode with Mark that I was not there for, but like, and, and, and this isn't really going to help our listeners because arbitration is going to be over when they listen. But like, if, if that's a real big need for you, like catcher, do you consider like, you know what, I'm going to add $2 to Real Muto, $3 to Perez and, you know, just to, to bol- bolster the catcher market i know you guys said that's not something that you do but if you're like a super elite team you're feeling really good about your your situation and that's like the one area of need for you don't you kind of want to guarantee that the auction's going to have more of those guys yes but the the problem the biggest issue i have with that is that i never know if i was effective at it right, right. so like you have a 20 you know if you have a 10 dollar real muto I could add two or three dollars to him. It's not going to make you cut him, sure, right? It's not going to push you over the top. If you have like, so the only what time this happens is if you have a guy who's like a borderline cut already. You have a twenty four dollar real muto where it's like, 
man, that's a lot for a catcher, but he's also maybe the best catcher. So it's close. So I put, you know, two bucks on him. I push him to 26. You cut him. I have no way of knowing if I forced you to cut him and got him back in the auction or if you were literally laughing at me when I put those dollars on him and were like, dude, I would have cut this guy at 17. Like, why did you, why did you push him to 26? And so to me, there's too much risk there and there's no way to ever measure how effective you are at it. And which means you can't ever get better at it. Sure. Right. You're just, you're just guessing. And so the downside to me, the downside of that is like, let's put it this way. You're a team that has a $24 real Muto. If you are cutting him, you are also at the auction going to be in the market for a catcher. And I know you're gonna be in the market for a catcher because you just cut real Muto. If I put $2 on Real Muto and you cut him, that $2, had I put them on a different player, would be $2 that you couldn't spend at auction on a catcher that I'm going to be targeting. So I've directly handed $2 very specifically to a team that will be bidding for the same players I'm bidding for. And that to me is not worth the, the upside of maybe getting them to be cut. And like, I don't know, it's just, it's it's such a narrow margin for that to be effective, right? Like if I put if, if I put two dollars on your twenty four dollar real Muto, and he goes at auction for thirty, because you after you cut him, then I didn't really force you to cut him. You just made a bad mistake by cutting him. He turns out to have been less more. You know, you should have kept him. He was more expensive at auction than he or traded him, I guess, than he would have been in season had you kept him. If I put two dollars on him and he goes for twenty bucks instead of twenty six, like then I have to assume you would have cut him anyways because you weren't willing to pay $21, $22, $23 in a bid on him. So you probably weren't willing to pay $24 either. So really, the only way I would feel good about that situation is if you have him at $24, I push him to $26, and at auction, he goes for like $25, right? Because then it's like, oh, at $25, you might have kept him, but at $26, you didn't. And then, And even then, it's only really useful if he goes at $25 at auction to me. Right. It's like if if that happens and you bid 24 and I bid 25 and I win at 25, then it's like, oh, you bid 24, you would have kept him at 24. And instead, I got him at 25. That's a win. That's worth a $2 allocation. I can never, I, there's no way for that. Like that exact scenario is almost never going to play out. And if that exact scenario doesn't play out, then I have no way of knowing whether this was worth it to me. It just feels like it's so, so high risk and such a narrow margin such a narrow like range of success. And I just, I, to me, that's not worth it. No, that makes total sense. Especially when you consider the alternatives, right? Like you got to apply at least a dollar to every team. Every team has at least some player that you could throw a dollar on and feel better about than rolling the dice with that strategy. I think that's right. Anyways, good episode. Glad to have you back, Pete. Fun to be, be back in the saddle together. Hope everyone enjoyed listening. Remember to follow the show at Keep or Cut on Twitter. That's cut with a K. You can follow Pete at Pete B Baseball. You can follow me at Chad Young. Subscribe to the show. You can also catch us on the Pitcher List feed. So if you subscribe to the Pitcher List podcast feed, you'll get us there through the off season at least. And send us feedback. Leave us ratings and reviews. Let us know what you want us to cover. Starting with our next episode, we're going to have some some draft results, some auction results to talk about from this auto new mock auction. I don't know if it'll be done in two weeks. Slow auctions take some time, 
but we'll have some early results and I'm excited to have that to share with all of you. But if there's anything else you want us to cover, questions you have for the off season, hit us up, let us know. We are happy to answer your questions. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in a couple weeks.